Welcome to Looking for the Ocean, where we talk about everything Pixar has ever made and what it means to us. I'm Danny Vincent, and as always, I'm joined by Mark Young. Are you excited to take a trip to Canada? Canada? Pixar Canada. We finally have reached something with it in the credits, very obviously. I feel like maybe they've done something before this that we haven't flagged, but this was the first one I noticed. So it's like, ah, Pixar Canada worked on this. Yeah, do we have any information about them? All I know is that they're a Pixar subsidiary, and I assume that taxes are kinder to them. Uh, well, they're disbanded now, so not really relevant anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, they were established in April 2009. They opened in April 2010, and they closed in October 2013. So actually, we've talked about them a lot, and they only have one project after this. They made Mater's Tall Tales, Air Mater. They made Time Travel Mater. They made Small Fry, and they made Party Source Rex. Mm. And then they made the three tales from Radiator Springs we'll be talking about today, and then the final tale from Radiator Springs we will eventually get to. They didn't make planes? No, that was Disney Toon, which we will get into in the planes episode. We can start with the Mater shorts, not the Mater shorts, but the Cars Toons shorts. Little shorts, which were bumpers like the Mater's Tall Tales, which played on Disney Channel around this time. And I guess they ran out of Mater's Tall Tales. These are just little, I guess they're like little comedy shorts about the different characters of Radiator Springs. And there are three of them. They're all directed by Jeremy Lasky, someone who I follow on Letterboxd. Last time, when I visited you and we talked about the Mater Shorts, we forgot to do something that is incredibly important when we talk about the Mater Shorts. So, whenever we go did a Mater Short, I'd always bring up my Letterboxd joke review. We didn't do that for the last two. Oh no. So, for Time Travel Mater, mine was not that popular. Mine was two and a half stars, and it just says, World Building 101. However, my Air Mater review was more popular. My joke review with one star and has 35 likes so still pretty good and actually according to this the third most popular review on Letterboxd for this is this didn't open with if I'm lying I'm not flying you had one job difficult times in the joke review section of Air Mater but thank you for doing what you can I was proud of that one I'm still I'm still good <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like I was like 80% there on the joke. I need to workshop it a bit more and then find a way to like make it clean. You've definitely you know? identified but... <laughs> things that are important in the joke, but yeah, it's a little on still on the way to being there. I want to also say I have a comment on the Air Mater short, which is uh, from Film Explorer from four years ago that says, you should switch your profile name to, and this is in all caps, that guy who watches all the Mater shorts. Have you already done that? No, remember I said I watched them all in a day in August of 2018, initially, and so this was, uh, Air Mater was the last one. That's why they got that comment. It's like, you guys, you watched all of them, so you should change that to your name. It's like, all right, no. Can I ask you really quick, what's your most like review on Letterboxd? Okay, so this is really, this is a, a really funny thing I always like to mention to people, is that my most liked review is a very standard review of The Nice Guys. Um, the reason it's funny to me, it's got 204 likes, but I, it makes me funny because I've only seen The Nice Guys once in theaters. And let me find the exact line that always cracks me up revisiting this. Is it really not here? I swore what I always would point out about this review was I talk about how I can't wait to revisit it again and again and again. Maybe I edited it out eventually. I think that that must have been. I must have at one point gone back to this and edited it out because I swear when I posted this review, I was like, I can't wait to revisit the nice guys again and again and again. And I've never once rewatched the nice guys. And I always remember thinking that was funny as when I was like, I, I must have edited it out at some point. Cause this was like from 2016 because it's not there anymore. But my second most popular review uh, which I do think is more fun to mention is on 199 likes. Uh, and it's my joke emoji movie review where it's got, I, it's a five star review. I remember it got some people angry at me comments because, um, there's one comment on here. Uh, someone was mad that it had so many likes because someone posted brevity is the essence of wit. It's like, all right, I can tell you're mad. This is a popular review that you're, cause it's like, it's a like 10 paragraph long joke positive review for the emoji movie. They also got the quote wrong. So one of these days, I gotta like record like a dramatic reading of my emoji movie review and like put like violin music behind it because it is actually pretty. I think it is one of the best joke reviews I've written, even though it is incredibly long. That we can put that at the end of the Christmas episode. A gift to the listeners: a dramatic reading of the emoji movie review Danny has on Letterboxd. By then, it will probably be at like two hundred. We're already telling people to avoid the Christmas episode. We can't keep doing this. To quote Julius in the comments, all right, I'll, I'll just because Julius found a great excerpt in this in. Commented on it immediately back in summer 2017. I'll, I'll read my my thing and then I'll read Julius's comment. Sir Patrick Stewart plays poop the poo emoji in the way that makes you think he is an actual piece of feces. And then Julius's comment on that line is great stuff like this makes me miss the days when people actually put effort into being funny on letterbox. <laughs> Man, I'm never getting a letterbox. 
I mean, you should... I stick by that people should use... You don't have to write reviews, but I think anyone who watches movies, I wish they had a letterbox just so I could know what they're watching so I could ask them about it if they watched a movie or like. You don't even need to, like, grade it or heart it. Just, like, press the button, like, watched it. Great. I can bring it up to you if you watched an obscure movie I didn't know you've seen. Well, maybe. You know? I hadn't thought about it like that. A couple of my friends who I saw um, Barbenheimer with, one of them only ever, like, logs a grade. I think the only time I've seen them log a review was, like, when they watched, like, alternate cuts of a movie and be like, watch this cut, the theatrical's better, or this improves it a lot. That's all they'll do. It's like, they'll, they'll watch a different cut and they'll give a comment on that cut, and that's the only reviews they ever put up. Well... We're here to talk about some films that might not even be on Letterboxd. They are. Though they are. More interestingly, actually, all the Pixar ones are on Flickchart. Like Hiccups, Bugs, Spinning, those are yeah, all on Flickchart. they're all on Flickchart, which surprised me. Well, those are the ones we're talking about. Hiccups is about Lightning between McQueen getting hiccups. Bugged is about the fire truck getting bothered by a bug. And Spinning is about Guido learning how to be a sign spinner to advertise the tire restaurant. The tire store, not the tire restaurant. These are all directed by Jeremy Lasky. He works in the cinematography department for Pixar. He's worked on... I don't have his exact credits because Letterboxd doesn't give you exact credits for, like, cinematography, right? It's just, like, cinematography department. I'm sure if I'm on time DB, I could find him, but he worked on Wally, Nemo, Toy Story 3, Cars 1 through 3. He's worked on all the Cars, Dory, and Lightyear. And these are the only three directorial efforts he has. I do follow him on Letterboxd, even though he does not follow me back. That's a shame. You want His four favorite movies are Jaws, Out of Sight, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Die Hard. What's Out of Sight? Out of sight? The yeah. Soderbergh film. I've never seen the Soderbergh film. Hey, look, a great way to transition to the thing I wanted to talk about before. Then I was like, maybe these will naturally come up. And it did perfectly. I don't know if it, it, if really... it did just because his name was mentioned. Do you want me to talk about it? Or well, no? I guess, I don't know. Here we are because you All right. actually... The good... look behind the scenes is that Mark and I have a document where we have our intro script there, our outro script. And I was like, oh, I don't have all the shorts for this episode listed. So I was like, oh, let me just copy and paste it from my media diary. And I was like, I have one like Steven Soderbergh does. Mark was like, what's that? And every year, Steven Soderbergh publishes on his website, like, a media diary where it's just the year with, like, the books he's read, the movies he's watched, the TV he's watched, and everything, like, he's done. And I always find it fascinating because it will be like, so last year, right, he was working on Magic Mike's Last Dance. So it's like, Magic Mike's Last Dance appears on that, like, 30 or 40 times of, like, the times he's watched the entire cut of it. Oh, wow. Or even when, like, he was working on the Nick. So, like, the Nick would constantly be on there. He includes his own stuff. On That's what I just like about it. It's like, he includes his own stuff on there. Where it's like, that's cool that you're keeping track of when you've tested different cuts mm -hmm. on this thing. But yeah. then it's also like, yeah, um, you can see, like, what shows he watches or what movies he decided were worth going out to see like what event movies he went to see i remember like top gun maverick was like he went to go see it in august of last year so i'm like okay cool like you weren't in a rush to see it but you still went out to go see it interesting you know i don't know i always look at them at the end of the year and a couple years ago i started making my own media diaries because i feel like with me finally starting to watch tv during the pandemic i was like i should keep track of the tv i watch because i used to not watch tv do you think you'll ever post it? I do post it, just on my old blog spot I never use anymore that has, like, my high school reviews for, like, Lincoln and, like, Skyfall and stuff. But I found the password to it a couple years ago and posted my media diaries. It's blankedoutreviews.blogspot.com. You want to check out my media diaries. Uh, and the thing that I do that Soderbergh does not do is I include the podcast I listen to, too, which just makes it extra long. Well, we might talk about high school things later in the pod, but do we want to get these Cars tunes out of the way? I say that we first rank them. We both give our one to three at the same time. Hold on, let me um, let me open up my ranking because I don't actually really remember like where I fell on these. Didn't you watch them like ten minutes ago? Yeah, but they all kind of blend together on like the other shorts we watched. All right, all right. Are we doing best to worst or worst to best? I think we should just do best to worst, but just like list them quickly. Three, two, one. Spinning, spinning bugs, hiccups, hiccups. Bugs. All right, really. So we, we agree spinning's the best. Yes. All right, What's, cool. What flips you on hiccups and bugged? I have a very strong fascination with the Pixar world and how they use their mouths. I mean, the Cars world and how they use their mouths. So hiccup at least touches on that to an extensive degree. So that pushes above the edge of bugged, which is a short film that could exist in any world and does not really need to be about a t uh, fire truck. 
I think spinning is easily the best because Guido is always a great character. So I am partial to spinning because, as I've said many times, I always love it when they 3D animate juggling, and I think it's fun that they developed a little act for him. And I think it's nice that it has like a clean, you know, beginning, middle, end, and hiccups and bugged. Well, hiccups actually has a solid-ish ending. Bug does not have a great ending. I would rate Bugged higher than Hiccups because I think for me in my movie watching diet, I am just sick right now of the Cars having mouths thing. I go back and forth on this, I think, as we watch Cars 2 and everything, you know. The more time I spend with the concept of the Cars as people, I am at times open to it and at times I'm sick of it. And I just watched it on a day that I think I'm sick of it, so I'm just not interested in how they drink or work. I think this short doesn't really explore it in an interesting way. Like, yeah, he gets hiccups, but again, why couldn't this have just been a short with things that aren't cars, and then it could have had an actual joke instead of them just being cars? I feel like the novelty is really wearing off for me. I would agree, but I'd say Bugged has the same issue. I think mm-hmm. there's nothing about Bugged that's like, it's about cars. Um, if anything, the one thing I have for Bugged is is that like I re- it really nailed, like, oh, flies around me i don't see where it is this is annoying but the question is am i going to enjoy something that gives me that experience probably not you need to realize it's really more to me like hiccups is like just a pure neutral level to me bugged is a little bit lower just because it's like ah this is kind of annoying me i think bug bugged pulls ahead for me because it has that moment of the fire truck realizing that he might have killed the fly and feeling bad about it and i wasn't expecting one of these cars tunes to tackle one of those human contradictions that's what makes it more exciting for me yeah i think i was glad that they tackled mortality it was a mortality of bugs do you think there's, like, bu- uh, car reincarnation? Reincarnation? Well, there's probably nothing but reincarnation because of the car. That's what Cars 3 should have been about, like, going to the dump. They're so not about answering the big questions. And in Cars 2, they weren't even about, like, exploring car culture in a neat way. I still think that it's cool that we had a movie about NASCAR and going to a small town in the West. I don't feel that way about, like, cartoon London or fake France or anything like that. Cartoon London has him being the bomb. I had a thought while watching Spinning, which does relate to, like, these, um, the Cars World Universe, that in a way, spinning a sign, I feel like, is something that would grab the crowd, because cars don't have hands. And that was my general thought while I was watching this. I was like, oh yeah, this is probably a really cool show for them. That Guido is good at this. He's the, the only car in town that, like, actually has those, like, forklift thingies. I don't know what you would actually call as appendages. But it's like, yeah, this is neat. No one else in town could do it. If Mater tried to do it, just be him, like, bumping off his hood. He could probably do it, but it wouldn't be as, like, cool as, like, handwork that Guido's given them. I also was thinking about everything ever all at once doing it and how I always wish they would utilize the the spin, uh, the sign spinner world more in that movie. But I remember that being a big part of the marketing and then it was, like, a one-off gag. And I was like, ah, come on. I would have rather spent more time there than Hot Dog Land. Yeah, but Hot Dog Land was important. Yeah, I know, but it's what the haters always quote. Like, I didn't like the Hot Dog Land. Silliness. I also like that in spinning, it just kind of has a normal, truthful ending. The other cars watching Guido spin the sign just congratulate him and leave without actually buying anything from the store. And then Luigi comes out and is angry at Guido. And that's perfect. I would agree. There's not really much to analyze other than like, oh yeah, all my notes on like, because I have, I wrote, so I have this thing, you know, and I think I mentioned it before. Is like, if I haven't seen the movie before, I will actually write a letterbox log to go alongside of my, usually when I put up our episodes, just like, I watched this for this podcast. Here's the link. Uh, with the grade that, uh, you know, is there before. But if it's something I have never graded before, it's another reason I wanted to delay our Monsters U episode because I don't believe I actually have it logged in Letterboxd, so I'd like to actually write a review for it when I watch it because I don't have it, like, logged there, um, which is like, I'm sick, so let's not watch rewatch this movie when I'm sick because I have never actually analyzed it, you know? So I wrote logs for all these Pixar shorts, and I will also say, I'm pretty sure I have seen Bugged and Hiccups before. I don't think I've seen Spinning, but Bugged and Hiccups, I'm actually pretty sure I've seen at least once. But for both Bugged and Hiccups, I did put for both of them, uh, there's not much to this. I don't really know I'm supposed like, I didn't put, I'm, I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about here, but there really is nothing to these. There's nothing really to spinning either, other than, oh, Guido, I like this guy. And, oh, cool, they're, like, playing with the idea of cars. It's like the VeggieTales problem, right? Where it's like, how do you use a haircut brush you don't have any hands, right? It's inherently interesting when they actually examine that in VeggieTales, rather than, we talked about this actually in our Christmas episode, now that I'm thinking about it, how it's interesting in that special where it's like, ah, 
Ah, Buzzsaw Louie has hands, and so do the penguins, and this is a bit they could never do with the vegetables usually. That's how I feel about with spinning. He's the bu- Guido is the Buzzsaw Louie. I'm skeptical about how interesting that is, but I can't remember if I'm contradicting myself from a previous episode. Right now in my brain, I'm thinking about Mr. Potato Head being a tortilla, and how much I hate that, and it's clouding my memory. I can't remember if I've ever been more open to the idea of them having hands. I also think, though, like, in spinning, it is kind of casual. It's just, like, it's something where you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, of course there'd be a crowd surrounding this, but also it works just as a guy like, oh, people like Guido, and this is, this is a cool show, you know? It works either way. I think it is just, it's just perfect and contained. It's not trying for anything like the bugged short, which I think fails at the end because the bug that was let live comes back with all of their friend bugs, and there's a question of like, well, why did the bug return after it almost died? And it doesn't have the ending of hiccups where the police officer car gets hiccups and then Mater tries to kiss him because he thinks it'll cure his hiccups, and it seems like... It, it, just, it just seems like a weird, like, loaded moment to end but the short on. They kiss with lips, with mouths. Do you have any other, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about with these? <laughs> Cars with mouths, too. Cars with mouths, too. Cars I with love mouths, that. three. What's I, the name of the show right the now? Title. Cars on the road? Cars with mouths on the road. Well, should we move on? Yeah, we have much cooler things to talk about, which... Mark, I will point out, I'll call Mark out for this, is initially we're only going to talk about Omelette, because Omelette was the only thing that's actually listed on IMDb. Do you want to say her name? Because I'm worried I'll butcher her name if I... Oh, yeah, I had to find something with her saying it. Let me look at it again. Madeline Sharafian. Yes. The only thing that was on her schedule was Omelette, which is one of her student films from Cal Arts. But Mark found on her Vimeo, she also has the one before Omelette and the one after, which is the the musician, muse, like a cat. And acorn. Can I ask really quick, where did you find Omelette on IMDb? Was that on her page? Or it's on was her it page listed else? as a director, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've heard that Omelette has gotten more uh, publicity and it's more well-known, and I cannot figure out why or where, but it definitely seems to be the case. I mean, I think Omelette's the best of the three. Yeah. Um, well, I, I agree with that, but I also am just kind of... I really thought that the musician was really cool, and I thought it would be a great thing to like show students, so I don't I know agree. why that's not well known so i maybe my hot take isn't hot which is like i didn't like acorn but i like the ever two a lot i don't think it's hot i think that acorn really seems like a precursor to burrow which is her spark short that madeline sharafian directed later on and that's kind of her pixar thing thing. she's working on a movie though they've said that she's again you know pixar always has like a bunch of feature films in development so you never know like until they announce it if they're actually fully committed, but she is reportedly working on something pretty hard. And I really hope it includes this art style, because everything she's done is in this art style, including, and I don't, we, we have a thing here where we don't really like to do detours of shows, but I've never watched this show, so I wouldn't mind watching a couple episodes that she's written and directed, if we want to put that in eventually as a detour. But she's worked on the Cartoon Network show We Bear Bears, which I've seen footage of that show, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, she's not a creator on it, but I'm like, yeah, her art style fits right in with that show. It's wild. I couldn't find anything else about this, but apparently she was on that show for a very brief amount of time before going back to Pixar. Mm. And it seems so wild because once you watch these shorts, I kind of thought she invented We Bear Bears, but, you know, obviously not. I mean, it would be really interesting if we had a detour to someone who, like, made an entire Cartoon Network show. You know what I mean? Not like, uh, not that we were going to, like, become a We Bear. It's like how I joked way back when is like, you know what we should do? We should, uh do episodes on each season of Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. And I was like, that's actually a terrible idea. We should not do that. People like We Bear Bears. Yeah, so. I've heard only good things. And mm-hmm. I think the vibe of them is kind of like her shorts also, where it's kind of like, you know, a nice little slice of life thing where it's got this cool animation. Obviously, We Bear Bears is at a TV level of animation, so it's a little cheaper than what her CalArts projects or her Pixar projects going to look like. But anyway, I do hope when mm-hmm. she ever she does her film, I hope she and... um. I don't have this director's name from me, but the Kipple director, I hope they're also kind of in this traditional animation vibe. Because I actually do think Pixar could get away with it. Because, you know, I mentioned on this podcast before, but now Disney has confirmed it. That Disney is happy with Elemental. They put out a press release and everything saying, this movie was a success. We are going to make a profit. 
Look at how well it did. We are happy with Elemental. Well, no, because, you know, there was this huge narrative after, and we talked about this before, there was a huge narrative after opening, like, it bombed, Pixar's doomed, and now it's made more than Indiana Jones, and made more than, it's it's making, like, a lot more money than a lot of the big movies this year that were on Disney's plate. I've, like, it's going to make, it, there's a decent chance of how it's playing in, um, I don't want to say this for certain, because I don't have the Jap- Japanese charts in front of me, but I believe it's already outdoing, um, what's it, um, the new Miyazaki. Granted, the new Miyazaki's been out for, like, a month there, and Elemental's new, so like, maybe that's not that cool of a stat, but, like, it's doing well, like, and Disney's proud of it, and you know what? It's, we should be happy they're proud of it, because otherwise it'd be like, oh, no, like, they want to throw out the, uh, you know, they might want to throw out Elio to, you know, Disney+. Plus. Yeah, it beat Indiana Jones 4, and The Flash, and Creed 3, and it's going to beat John Wick 4, Transformers, almost certainly, and possibly Ant-Man 3. So, like, it's doing great worldwide. It's going to make Disney a profit. And more importantly, you know, for Disney, it's, as we said, I think I said this earlier when I was defending its box office run, more importantly for Disney, it's made a valuable IP for them, where they might not, like, give it an Elemental Park ride, even though they probably should. Like, it obviously would be a good water ride. Come on. But they could give it a park ride. But more importantly, I feel like Elemental is the thing that it's, like, prime, like, let's give these characters, like, a Disney Plus show type of thing. Have they made, what's the other Disney Plus show that they had? They, coming? It's coming in December. I'm actually, it's, I'm more excited for it than I was for Elemental. Um, It's called Win or Lose. It's a, Oh, okay. So it's new? It's new. It's a new IP. There was a recent story when Elemental, like, you know, initially was bombing. So Disney was, like, re-looking at it. And it was from um that guy, Matthew Baloney who writes for Puck News, but I, I, I feel like calling him by name is fine because it's one of those guys who's, like, used to work for, like, a trade, and now he went off and made his own blog date to pay for, but he gets scoops. Um, And his scoops are accurate, usually. Like, I don't think he's ever had, like, an inaccurate scoop unless it's, like, actually, he would follow it up and be like, actually, this fell through, sorry. But anyway, th- in one of his articles recently, he was like, this it fell apart. They had another original project in development for Disney+, Plus, but they're trying to retool it into a movie because they don't think there's much to be gained on giving Pixar TV shows. But, like, they also had the Forky mm. show, you know, which was, like, a series of shorts. And I'd say, I think that's what Elements will be pretty, pretty good for. Anyway, Madeline Sharafian's films. It is wild that these came out in 2013 and we were making films. Probably you in school were. I was in my freshman year when she made Acorn. Yes. But, and I was going to say, these aren't all in the same year. The the muse, I'm going to assume, because we have one of these for each year, that I'm going to assume the musician was her sophomore year project. I'm going to assume Omelet was her junior year project. I'm going to assume Acorn was her senior year project. Because I feel like that's usually how these things work if there's three that are given to us instead of four. And they're all from separate years. So I kind of think, I feel like I read that somewhere on her one of her sites. So I'm right. Good. Yeah. I think it's obvious why each of these movies get longer than the last one. But also, I find a- the, the musician and Omelet have much more compelling ideas behind them than what Acorn is. Yeah. And I think Burrow is a much better, as you said, it might be a proto-Burrow, but Burrow is a lot better. Yeah, well, I do think, this is, I'm doing the thing that I hate to do, but I feel like there must have been a time requirement for Acorn, because it is really beautiful and impressive, but it just kind of goes on, and it's about this acorn that doesn't want to be in the same ground as the other acorns that fall from the tree, so he goes on, like, this little journey, but it's just kind of a lot of, it's sort of, like, broken into so many different parts, this journey. We see, like, every step, it's just kind of, ah... But Burrow, I think, is thematically similar because it's also about one character who feels like they need to separate themselves from the group that they're in, and then shenanigans ensue. Um, Of course, Burrow has a different ending. Burrow is about a rabbit just making a burrow. So, my thoughts on Acorn relate to my parents earlier this week went to go see the Barbie movie. And afterwards, they called me about it. And, well, actually, I called them, and they sent me to voicemail, and then they called me back, because obviously I'm curious on my parents' take on the Barbie movie. They both liked it. My mom, as I expected, thought it was a bit preachy, but she still liked it. She actually, she actually had a one point that I thought was correct that I won't get into because it's kind of a spoiler. She, at one point, she did say, is like, I feel like if I was a man, I'd be offended by it. I'm like, well, I'll tell you, as a man, I'm not offended by it because the Kens are dumb Ken dolls, and there are no normal men in the movie that are like treated dumb like you know what i mean like there are no normal men in the movie so like there's no reason for me to be bothered by this but the thing is she gave all these things and she's like i still liked it but the reason i bring this up is because my dad's opinion on it was i think the emotional part of the barbie movie is barbie i think the idea of a doll falling in love with humanity 
and ultimately ending up where she does at the end of the movie to be incredibly moving and makes me want to cry even talking about it. And I'm sure I would be crying talking about it if I was being specific, but I'm also being vague because, of course, this movie just came out still. And it's, I feel like we're still in like the area of like, don't spoil Barbie. Don't spoil. Some people just haven't made it out to it yet, which is like, you know, it's fine. But my dad was like, I'm very much emotionally connected to the mother and the daughter and her dealing with her being in middle school and like reconnecting over old Barbie dolls. And I was like, huh, that's interesting because I haven't heard anyone my age say that. But I also am like, oh, okay, you know, I guess I should have guessed my parents weren't going to connect to like the metaphysical, like I don't, metaphysical is probably not the right word, but like how would a toy actually react when confronted with humanity? Uh, of course, my parents aren't interested in that. They are interested though, like in a mother-daughter relationship. And all this relates to my opinion on Acorn because with Acorn, I'm just like, I don't know how in the world I could ever relate to this Acorn trying to find the right place to grow up to be a tree. I just find that completely like uncompelling on every level. Um, in the way but that you don't, you find it, you find Barbie's story compelling though. I do find Barbie's story compelling, but the difference is, well, I'm just saying that like, okay. So for my parents, it's like, okay, that makes sense why they would never connect it to me. It's like specifically like comparative criticism here. One of these is like a dog taking care of his owner. That's obviously very sweet. I'm going to connect to that. The other one is a cat just playing the piano for fun. Okay, cool. Nice vibes. This is like, and Acorn's trying to find a nice place to live that's away from other acorns. I don't know. I'm never really compelled. The movie never really gives me a reason why to be like, why can't this acorn live with other acorns? Why is this a, like, I just find it very half-baked. And I think if you're going to personify something like this, you need to do it like the Barbie movie where it's like stereotypical Barbie is like giving you initially as a stereotype, but there are layers there that get uncurled. And obviously in a four minute short, you don't really have the opportunity to do that. But I also just, I don't know, I don't find the acorn compelling and I, I mm. never cared about him. And I thought that was my thing I was going to say is like acorn was legit. Like all these shorts, even because of the hard ones, like I watched them. It's like, that's good. Acorn, I kept pausing it because I was just kind of bored of it, even though it's four minutes long. I was like, oh my God. It's like, and I kept looking at the time left and I was like, there's like nothing to this. And it looks nice. Sure. But like compared to Omelette and the musician, I'm just like, what happened here? Who, said, who was the professor yeah. that said yes to this? It's funny that we're so critical of other professors when I think if one of us had, like, made acorn and shown it to our professors, there would have, like, exploded. See? <laughs> like when the Ark is opened in Indiana Jones. Maybe. But I also think if our professors had seen Omelette, our project from the year before, they would have been like, downgrade, your last one last year was better, you know? That's really the whole thing to me is like, you know, you hope student films get consecutively better. And this is like, not like very clear, like, all right, well, this one, it, it peaked last year. Well, it didn't peak, but you know, there's still enough promise in Omelette and the Musician that I wouldn't write someone off from Acorn, you know? And I also don't even think Acorn is that bad. It's just kind of boring and it looks, it looks nice, but. I mean, it is not as entertaining as the previous two shorts. But I think Acorn, just to give a defense of it, I think Acorn is more ambitious. And I do think this is fully realized in Burrow. The themes are more fleshed out, and the art is, you know, of course, like, it's a whole studio doing it and everything. But I think that to start from the pre premise of an Acorn that wants to be different, but it's not totally clear why, is much more engaging than, oh, this dog wants to cook an omelet. And this cat likes to play the piano. And I feel like those concepts don't require a whole lot of like, well, let's let's wait, let's take a step back and like make a serious short film. That's like, come on, guys, we want to see a dog make an omelet. I, I posit that omelet is a much more serious short film than Acorn. And first off, before we get into this, I realized, Mark, didn't you want to give synopsis of all these for the listeners before we get into them, even though we've already started getting into them? Well, uh, just really quick. We kind of talked about it already. Musicians about a cat chasing a mouse and then he steps on a piano and then he gets really into playing piano. Omelette's about this guy that comes home from work and he's really tired and his dog sees that he's really tired and that he's trying to fix himself dinner, but he can't like fix himself dinner. So the dog makes the dinner for him. But also tries to pretend like he's not, like he's still a normal dog. And then Acorn, we kind of already talked about. I really recommend Omelette. It's super easy to find. Omelette, I think, is the most serious of these. Because the thing about Omelette is it kind of goes back to actually what I was positing with Barbie, is that Omelette is ultimately about a dog caring for its owner, which is always like a potent emotional idea for it. I think about the film, um, the short film, which I actually talked about last week, Feast, which is also like with the Paperman style that Disney did. And that's like about a dog. It's a story of like a dog, an owner of a dog's relationship through the food the dog gets. And like eventually the dog, like, you know, gets them back together after a breakup, you know, and it's like very sweet and nice. And it's like that type of thing always is going to be emotional to me because, and then at the end of the short, you think that it's, I don't know if you've seen Feast. The end of the Feast always makes me cry because I feel like 
I remember right, the end of the short makes it look like the dog's like old and is going to die, but then it turns out, no, they have a baby now, and he the baby plays with the dog, and the dog is still happy, and I'm like, oh. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I haven't seen Feast, but I've definitely seen images of it. I should watch that. Yeah, Feast is this. Feast is a good one. But Omelette is kind of the same way, not as emotionally potent, but the ending where they're sitting on the couch together and the owner realizes the dog made the the thing for him, and the dog and the owner's just like Oh, well, he doesn't have, this is like a silent short, but he's kind of like, oh, all right, like, good dog, you know, like, I, just a simple, like, you know, I, I said this a couple months ago, I recently rewatched Babe for the first time, and Babe really understands the simplicity of, like, an owner of an animal just saying, good job, or that'll do, you know, like, that, that, that's just an intent, so, like, I like it, I like how understated it is, I like how nice it, I like the reveal of the milk bone, I just mm-hmm. think it's a very sweet emotional short that isn't it's not really emotional like you're not gonna cry watching it but it's hard to like it ends in like i'm like smiling i'm like oh that's so sweet like that's so nice like whereas acorns like it ends with like he becomes a tree i'm like great cool like and i think too i even see some seriousness in omelet because it does involve shots of the guy like almost cutting his fingers off (laughs) with a hatchet or cleaver or whatever before the dog steps in to save him. And it does seem like there is this darkness in the man's life that is never really explored, but is definitely there. But then the dog cheers him up, which is why we love dogs. Yeah, everyone should just watch this short because it's really impossible to explain how much happens in it. It's really a nice vibe piece also. Too. All these are, well, Omelette, I said musician is a vibe, but Omelette is also like, it's just, it's got danger to it, but it's also just like, oh, cute dog. Yeah, Steven Universe is there too. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like also mentioned, I was going to bring that up too, because we mentioned it before on the podcast, like that Kyle Arts criticism of like how like Star Wars vs. Evil, Steven Universe, Gravity Falls, that entire era all had like this thing that the internet calls the Kyle Arts style. And here we watch a short film from Kyle Arts at that time, and sure enough, that style is kind of here. And I think actually We Bear Bears also. <laughs> Follows that style. But again, I don't actually mind it. I, I I generally like it also in student films more where it's like there's a roughness around the edges to it. And I also think Burrow kind of goes away from it. I didn't mind whenever... I mean, I wasn't even watching cartoons at this point, but I didn't mind when anything, everything looked like Dexter's Laboratory. Yeah, I mean, Omelette is just fantastic. And Musician is also really pleasant. I like it for the same reasons that I like Omelette. It is... Really entertaining to see how many jokes she can squeeze out of characters' expressions in a short amount of time. And you get a lot of that in Musician. Musician doesn't really have much of an ending, but... There's so much character to the designs in either of Omelette and Musician. Yeah. And also just how she, like... Because they aren't really, like, smoothly animated, too. It's like... I don't know what the frame rate is on this, but they're not... There's not a lot going on here in any either of them it's Mm kind of jerky but she can still get so much out of like a single expression type of thing you know yeah i wanted to watch all of these partly because there's so much online still that she kept up from being a student that i thought it was really cool that it's like oh my gosh she's just like me for real she has all of this stuff that's like readily available so it's really interesting to look at this and compare it to things that we were working on like four years later because she's she's 30 that's just a fact that pops up on her IMDb. She's two years older than me. She's got an Oscar nom. Well, she was also working at Cartoon Network while she was in college. That makes sense. Also, this is like, again, early 2010s where it's like, ah, yes, Cartoon Network is like ruling, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, this is Adventure Time, regular show. Because, again, when she's in school, that's those things. And then We Bear Bears is when I'm in school and it's like, eh, I don't, I know, I, you know, I miss that. So it's like, mm-hmm. or Steven Universe is where, Steven Universe is actually really the cutoff for me. I never watched Steven Universe, you know? Whereas if it had come out like a year earlier, I'm sure I would have watched all of Steven Universe. Yeah. You know? I remember I watched a little bit of Adventure Time. And I haven't really been able to get into Over the Garden Wall as much as other people have. I love Over the Garden Wall. Yeah. I have these things where it's like, I used to watch things every year, and then I reached a point where I was like, one year, I was like, all right, so time to take a break. And that was me two years ago for Over the Garden Wall. And like, I think there was a time where the first Spider-Verse movie, I'd watch it like every Christmas. And then I was like, all right, time to take a break. I feel like this Christmas might be that for the Muppet Christmas Carol, but we'll see. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not quite there yet for the Muppet Christmas Carol. I'm curious about, you know, I couldn't find any interviews about this kind of thing, but I'm very curious about what her feelings are that of all of the short films which she has available on the internet, she has Omelette as 
the most well-known. And obviously her things are all like way more high profile than our things are. But I feel this way about my own stuff that I've produced. I'm actually like most happy with stuff that was kind of made in the middle of when I was getting a film degree and it was very casual. And now that's the stuff that I can look back on and like not cringe about. None of these are cringeworthy, which is very like, wow, she's she's got something. But for my own stuff, I just think like the the least cringeworthy thing was something that happened in the middle of that whole journey for me. Just something that I felt really confident about. You just reminded me of, and I'm I'll allude to it. But I'm not gonna say what it was, but you just reminded me of my first tune film, which is something that is buried to the recesses of time and hopefully will never come back. Because it was probably accidentally offensive, definitely thinking back on it. Um, but I also think about the only film I've ever made. That's a, well, I have two films on my wiki, my my YouTube. One of them is okay and it was for a class, but then there's another one where it was purposely kind of shoddy, but not like other purposely kind of shoddy films. That I'm sure that the way I'm emphasizing this means Mark knows exactly which film I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Not like other purposely shoddy films. One where I was just kind of like, I don't care about like the white balance and stuff. Let's just shoot it and go. But we're still going to do, we talked about this before. We're still going to put like Ghost Billy Wilder in this and like stuff like, like dumb special effect shots in this. And then, but also we're going to have it be like something where we didn't bother to ADR Julius. We'll just use the camera audio because it's funnier that way. Like stuff like that. But, like, I don't know. I look back at some stuff I did in college, and I'm always like, I don't know. I think some of it's fun and stupid. Like, I don't know. I'm pretty... I can name stuff I'm proud of and stuff I'm not proud of. I know what I'm not proud of that we worked on together. Another very ambitious one that, you know, should be burned, but I actually don't think that you sh- If it's not, like, actually offensive, I don't think you should delete things that you made when you were younger. Because I think that if you ever become really good at something, it's good to have that record online. I just am thinking, though, of, uh, what did it, um, what did someone once call it? Someone called that film once, wow, I'm glad someone made the white La La Land or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I don't know, because I think, if I remember right, you know, I, I didn't really make films that much in college. I, like, pretty quickly shifted over to, like, acting and stuff. I want to get a copy, though, of, um, that student film I starred in for movie MCM. The one that Dan Hydorn directed, who I can mention by name because he's guested on this podcast. You I guess should, I should, you just should call him like, up. Can I get a copy of that? Yeah, I really should. I'd be like, I have a copy of that? Because mm-hmm. uh, I was, well, I did once act in a student film, which was an unusual experience. Because normally, um, normally when I acted in something, it'd be something like a Rushmore thing. It was very quickly put together. And like, I purposely was not trying to be good. But then I tried to give a good performance in that. The thing about also my performance in that is like, I don't think it's conventionally good. The Dan Hydorn one. But I think it's what he wanted because he was aiming for, like, you know, that David Lynch vibe type of thing. Or more like that Barry kind of vibe, even though Barry wasn't out yet. Which is like, yeah, I think I... But anyway, and I, I'm talking about myself now. I'm like... But no, I agree that it's good to have your old stuff up. It's fun to... It's also just fun to, like, link to stuff. Like, I link to my Rush... The Rushmore video we did. Anytime, like, Wes Anderson comes up, I'll be like, hey, do you see my remake of it? You know, I think a lot about those things, too. We made a musical... And I feel like when that was made, I felt like I needed to have a lot of control over it. Um, And this is a film that I made with Danny and Sarah. But I I just remember feeling like I had to have a lot of control over it. Because this was kind of like one of the last things that I made in the film program before switching to a theater major. And I feel like at that point, I had had so many weird experiences with film. And I was also just kind of falling out of love with the program. It's really wild that before I was in the program and after I was in the program were my strongest feelings of like, what the fuck was I doing? But like in the program, there were all of these rationalizations that I made for myself. And of course, like I like making movies. So like doing that was fun. I just, I felt like I needed to have so much control over it. And I feel bad about that because I feel like I was a dick to you and Sarah. No, I I would definitely say if Sarah was here, she'd be more like adamantly agreeing with you right now because I didn't remember that project and she was. I remember Sarah was just getting annoyed. She was getting credit for like lyrics and she was like, "I did not write all of this. Don't give me this credit." 
or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't have any like excuses that are, you know, worth any anything. It's it's just funny to look back because I do think that things that we made, I'm thinking of something different when I think of like a film that I enjoyed making and that I still like go back to just to be like, "Oh, this doesn't like make me want to claw my eyes out." But I'm thinking Man, about I, like I, our, I said, that's me with shit in a can. I love shit in a can. I think it's great. There's there's just something like there that you just understand and i feel like things that we made like the rushmore short and even when i'm thinking about when we shot that finding nemo remake i have like fond memories of that as well and i think in both of those cases things were out of my control and it was better for the project overall because i mean other in, in those cases i'm thinking specifically like other people were doing cinematography and stuff like that I just think it's much easier in that situation to respond to something emotionally because you're being presented with it and you don't have, like, stake in it. To tie this all back to what, you know, this show is about, and it's not just about our backstories, but it kind of is, I think that it's interesting to see someone make such accomplished student short films like these animated ones are, but then go on to make something like Burrow, and then you see Burrow with the power of a studio behind it, and then you really do see, like, okay, this is, like, a rounded piece. You can tell that there are multiple voices which have come together to make this story, which feels like a complete story and a complete world. It's interesting to talk about, like, our student films, in a way, because to me, maybe you disagree because also you were there a year longer than me, so I don't actually know how your final year was. But to me, you know, my student films are my first two years of college. And there's a couple of our stuff in there that's, like, our collaborations. But, like, the actual student stuff that was, like, designed to be filmed was, like, stuff like... The furthest I got on, like, the serious filmmaking track was my short film Raccoon Bro, which is, like, a bad... A purposely bad musical type of thing. Not like... Okay, let me rephrase. It's meant to be, like, a sincere story where people start singing badly at the end of it because it's kind of funny that they're bad singers, but that's also how things naturally are. But after I did that... I, you know, I switched over to theater, but the reason I bring this all up is that, to me, what actually is something to track my progress on is something that isn't available to everyone, and that is the development of the plays we wrote, and how, you know, the first year I was in the Big Muddies, which I'll explain very briefly for the listeners who might not remember, because I'm sure we mentioned it before, but also I don't think it's come up for a bit, is that we all were in playwriting, and the way playwriting worked at our school was... After one undergrad course, the only options were you taking the grad courses where you had to put something new on every month, basically. Put on, like, a new short play every month. I think that is more interesting because I remember my first year of doing that was me playing in my comfort zone, knowing what I wanted. And then the second year was, let me try to do some weird stuff and see what sticks and what doesn't. And a lot of stuff in my latter year, you know, I don't think is as good, but I also think it is way more textually interesting than, say, my first time I tried to write a serious play. And it's like, these flags are talking to each other about what it means to be a flag. But then I, I'm trying to remember some stuff I wrote. But I remember, like, once being told, like, you wrote one... I think maybe you mentioned it to me. You, it was, like, that play I wrote about, like, the Tinderbots. Or maybe it was someone else. Someone was like, I found it very moving that the one gay character in this was someone who was from Russia. And I was like... And it was, like, openly in Russia. And I was like, oh, well, thanks. I didn't really think about that, but thanks. I don't think I said that. I also don't think it was you because you were in it. I think it was someone who saw it. Sorry, go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. Which Tinderbot was I? I think you were... No, no, you were the person who's like, no, bro, here's here's how you spot him, okay? And the, because the joke of it was is that you would respond to these people who walk up to you, seem normal, and just say to them, please enter your credit card information to you. And if they just responded back, please enter your credit card information, that's how you know they're a bot. But if, you, if they responded back, uh... And immediately unmatched, that's how you know they weren't. But oh. then it's like, you can't rematch with them. So it's just a dumb, it was a really dumb play. It wasn't that good of one, but someone was like, thought it was very moving that our, our former guest of the podcast, Kevin Hart, played a, a gay Russian. And people were like, I found that very compelling. I'm opening up my, um, my, all my plays thing. And I don't know, there's some good stuff in here. Remember once I had to write a Jesus play. There's also some bad stuff. There's my Green Book parody I'm really proud of that I open up like once every like, like, once every, like, year or so, I'll reread my Green Book parody and go, like, ah, that's funny. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, I don't know. There's some good stuff in here. I'm proud of my... I'm proud of the stuff I wrote in college. If only I kept writing. If only I still wrote stuff. You do, though. Yeah. I was thinking recently, I saw the movie, um... And maybe I texted you this thought, too, but I'll still say it. Is this past weekend I saw the movie Theater Camp, which put a lot of ideas in my head, both in general, where it's like, oh, man, you know, I really should, like, 
look into working at like a place like this where like people spend money to do cool stuff with you rather than like you just get every single kid you know what i mean like well you know like you know what i'm saying i'm not i'm not yeah. bagging my job too hard by saying that but then also i'm watching it and i'm like i have thought this since i saw american vandal season one but if like i could write any like indie screenplay and give it to someone that could possibly get it like produced a million like something that would cost like a million two million tops i'd like try to find jimmy tatro and write him something if i find jimmy tatro would be like the most talented untapped potential of comedic energy right now since american vandal season one came out because he's in theater camp and he's hilarious in it Mm -hmm. and he does this thing in theater camp where i don't know if you know what the plot of theater camp is it's like there's a theater camp and amy sedaris runs it but unfortunately in the first scene amy sedaris has a seizure at a production of bye bye birdie because of the strobe lights and she gets into a coma for us the the movie so jimmy tatro her son who's like a crypto bro is being put in charge but he's not like a harmful crypto bro he's just an idiot because he's jimmy tatro you mm-hmm. know what i mean like yeah. jimmy tatro always plays like the harmless idiot and he's like put in charge of the theater camp and he doesn't understand it but like ben platt and molly gordon are like the two lead counselors at the camp and every year they put together an original play and that year they're putting together something like a tribute to joan who's who amy sedaris plays and there's a part of it where like you know jimmy tatro's just being an idiot the entire time um, he has a really great line in it where he's like can you uh someone does a what's that song by post malone that's like something better or so better or something like that i know what you mean but i can't think of it someone sings as like their audition song and that's like the first time he like goes like oh yeah this song can you do another post song like uh and he names like another post song i don't know the name of he's like or uh that one from the spider for soundtrack and I, I, to me that's always funny to me is if someone like in a movie if someone goes like that one from that movie when it's like a huge hit outside of the movie because i don't think anyone like will ever say oh yeah that post malone song from spider-verse and such a saint sunflower i just find it anyway i don't know i actually feel the opposite way i know it as the sun i know it as the song from spider-verse i felt that way when it but it's it played at a wedding i was working at a few days ago and i was like why do they have the spider-verse song at their wedding okay but i still think also the delivery of the line being like oh yeah man can you like in the, the also in the context of being like an audition for a musical being like do another post song like this song or the one from spider-verse is just really funny but anyway there's a moment in the movie where he um walks into one of their practices of the show and it's the scene where like his mom finds him as a baby like not finds him as a baby but, like sings to him about like the baby version of like i'm going to make a great world for you and he just starts crying and i'm like man jimmy tatro bunch of unreserved like bunch of untapped talent there anyway all this to say is like my one thing right now my idea for play is like and I know there's not going to be a lot of boys there. Maybe I write something that's for Jimmy Tatro and just say, here, you can use the Like, you know what I mean? Like, because I do think that's a character type that's always really funny anyway. Maybe I think you underestimate that's... the amount of boys that will be at any theater camp. No, I'm not talking about a theater camp. I'm talking about the, the same people who did my commission last year. I know the amount of boys that will be there. I know there's not going to be many. Can I ask you something? When you wrote those parts, and I guess in general... If you write a part that you know has to be funny, do you think you need, like, someone you know as a comedian? Or do you think you need someone who is just kind of like, if we have a good enough actor, they'll be able to portray the truth of this, and the truth of the scene will make it funny? I think it depends on the style of humor. I think that's why, it's actually, that kind of nails, though, why I think, again, I, I think Jimmy Tatro is someone who, you know, I don't watch his ABC show, obviously, because I don't watch ABC shows. But I look at that American Vandal season, which I forget if you've ever actually watched or not. I feel I like I always have. recommend it to people. That, yeah, I always recommend to people no one ever watches it. But I look at him in that show and he plays like he plays like the idiot high schooler so perfectly that when like the pathos comes through, he doesn't actually have to do a lot. But since he's been playing it so well, it feels so emotionally earned. And that's also how I feel about his performance in theater camp where it's like this guy is so great at playing this character type. And actually, you know what? I should be pretty clear here is that the play that sarah and i have worked on for years we have written a rule for jimmy tatro basically in it where it's like this would be the perfect role for because we both love american vandal and we also think jimmy T- i've actually you know i've told all this about that game that i used to play online one of the last projects i ever wrote for that game won jimmy tatro a fake oscar which is a fun little achievement for me but also it's like he has a type. People just got to mine it. But also, in mining that type, I think you can still write something good. I feel like I'm avoiding your actual question here by going back to Jimmy Tatro, and I'm sorry for that. I don't but think I don't think I are. actually grasped your question. Maybe I wasn't clear. I It's something that I've been thinking about, and I don't know if I, like, 
expressed it enough to get it out of my brain and into yours. I, I just feel, I was thinking about this when I was watching The Nice Guys. I, I don't know, I think that Ryan Gosling, his comedic performance in Barbie, it, it is fantastic. Miles above, for me, what he was doing in Nice Guys. I want to counter what you're talking about. Well, not even counter, but bring up a different example from Barbie. Which is, there's a scene in that movie, there's a lot of scenes in that movie I've been thinking about nonstop, but the scene I've been thinking about the most is the scene where Margot Robbie's Barbie meets the kid, and she goes, it's me, Barbie! And I think about how she delivers that line, and how there is so much truth to it as the character we've seen up to that point, but it's also so goofy and over the top that it is still funny but it's also like you're there like the, the whole movie i that's my take on barbie i think i've dropped before i think margot robbie and barbie is like the reason the entire thing works i think it is her best performance yet i, I am so impressed by it on so many levels and i look at that scene and how she plays both the it's me barbie and then the, after she gets like the what do you call it i want to say like the breakdown but it's not the breakdown but like the drop or whatever when the kid like completely like annihilates her and she just goes oh okay and like she delivers she kind of both underplays the crying but still keeps it in the space where it never feels like it's betraying the character or going for a laugh but it is still funny and i think about how that scene done by a lesser actor could be like not good at all it could also have it could have both no emotional truth to it and just feel like you're handing it up for a gag and yet she plays it at just the right level, where I also think just reading that on the page going, hi, it's Barbie, and being like, Barbie, you're a fascist. Oh, like that on the page probably isn't that funny. But as it is to me, that is like, I point to that scene as the reason why the whole movie works. So like that, that is the, that is the epitome of why the Barbie movie works is that sequence. Mm. I, I've also made this joke. I don't think I'm, if I made it on the podcast before, cut this out. I definitely think that should be here. Like if she gets an Oscar now, that should be her Oscars clip. Like, you know, the, it's me, Barbie, and the, oh, and locking away crying. Like mm. that is her entire performance right there in like 30 seconds. Yeah. And I think about that and how well motivated it is. And there's a lot of other jokes in the movie, specifically for Mark. I think all of Ryan Gosling's jokes, even though, yeah, I agree he's giving a very well motivated performance. I think all of Ryan Gosling's jokes are still like jokes on the page. Whereas like Margot's jokes are all like in the performance. And that's actually why I think in a way, probably a lot of her funny lines don't actually hit as funny because she's playing them so real. But I, that is the right choice to do. Because Barbie needs to be real in that movie for it to work. And I think about that with motivation all the time. As for me as a writer, um, I will remind you that currently these commissions I've been doing are for middle schoolers. So this is not me harshing on the kids too much. But you can't really rely on a, an actor on a middle school level that's not like a private school to like, you know, really fix your work. So you just got to try to be tight on it, I feel like, anyway. I will say, there is, and I've mentioned this before, there was one joke a kid added that I was like, that's brilliant. Why didn't I have that in there? So actors will still surprise you and still give you something good, even if you, you think nothing. I don't want to sound like I'm bashing the kids because the kids were good, you know? But it's like, I think, or I think about like back in college, right? When we would write like these big muddies where it'd be like, here's the motive. I think about, I always talk about this play because I think this is my best play ever in college. 2016, Donald Trump is elected president of the United States of America. It is a dark day for all of us. But luckily for me, I turned in my entry the Monday before when I thought he wasn't going to win. So the theme was the movies. And everyone's, most people's big muddies were about like how doomed we were and like how celebrity led to a demagogue being elected president. And then mine was about a couple whose anniversary dinner was on the night The Force Awakens came out. And someone in the op next to them spoiling the entire movie for them. Mm -hmm. And I think about that performance and that the... Because the thing about that, if I remember right, was I did not like the performance that I got out of the spoiler people. But the people I had as the couple who were was getting it spoiled, I really thought they made it even funnier. Like, they, they knew how to keep... When to keep it real. Because there was a point of it where the audience even awed. And like... I don't know that I do think that was a good I, that was a good play because one you know it was one funny play tonight of like people panicking about the future 
And in a way, I also pointed that as like, that was a play everyone wanted to see. Cause it's like, remember back when getting a Star Wars spoiler was the worst thing that could happen to you? Like, the, and, mm-hmm. but then again, also, I do think that was elevated by the actors. Cause I think if I post, if I pulled that back up and had you read it, you would be like, this isn't as funny as I remember. I think I'll walk back what I was saying about the nice guys because I don't know. I just don't think that's the best example of what I'm talking about. And I also think it's another. Like, I have different thoughts about The Nice Guys, and lots of people love that movie. It's probably something that people should go check out. Do you know what I just thought of, which is probably going to be annoying that I'm bringing you back to Barbie, but I'm going to talk about another movie first, is the other take I've been saying to everyone about Barbie is that people don't want to talk about it because she's obviously not the best part of the movie, but it pretty easily has Kate McKinnon's best film performance yet in it. And that's just because, like, I point to the female Ghostbusters movie, which is a movie I like. I need to always have that on record is that my fun thing to say at parties in film school was always being like, hey, what's your favorite Ghostbuster movie? Mine's the one that just came out with all the women. <laughs> they would get people, it always, it would always bait someone to like an argument where I was like, nah, man, the new one's better though. Because I, I think I have them both at like six out of ten. So I'm like, well, they're the same thing. It's more fun to like pick the controversial thing. Mm-hmm. But as much as I actually do like the female Ghostbusters movie, I think Kate McKinnon is very forced in that movie. I think she's constantly kind of mugging for the camera. There's no internal life to her character. I look at Leslie Jones in that movie as like actually a good performance. Because she is doing her Leslie Jones thing. But it's always like in contrast to Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig. Like under like because you know she's like the she's the person who doesn't know ghosts are real. So I was like oh it's a ghost. And she's like what are you talking about there's a ghost there you know. And like she's Leslie Jones is good in that movie. It might, okay, this was something people complained about at the time, and I think it was valid, is like, you're gonna reboot Ghostbusters of all women. Great, cool. Um, don't put this as progressive if, once again, the only person of color character is the one who isn't a scientist, right? Like how in the original Ghostbusters, they just hire Ernie Hudson, right? And that's basically who Leslie Jones is in this. She's, she's someone who, like, spots a ghost, doesn't believe it, but then calls them anyway. And then she joins the team that way. Should I watch the the new Ghostbusters? I'm really, is Melissa McCarthy, like, Female serious? Ghostbusters are the new one. There's a newer one, remember? Well, I guess female Ghostbusters, not the one that I, I've... I, I don't enjoy know it. I think it's a fun movie. I saw it twice in theaters. Will I ever see it again? Probably not. Um, but will I always stick by being the best, best Ghostbusters movie? Sure, because I have more of a desire to revisit than the original anyway. Is Melissa McCarthy serious in that movie? Yes. She and Kristen Wiig are not that funny in that movie. Hmm. It is mostly Leslie Jones, Kate McKinnon, and Chris Hemsworth who gets the jokes in it. But no, but... but that's, not to get back to Barbie, but I do think Kate McKinnon and Barbie is like the first time I've seen her in a movie where it's like, okay, this is like a character that exists in that world and she is ostracized from society, but she's making do. And like, I really enjoy her performance in Barbie because it felt like she finally tapped into like something where it felt very lived in. Whereas normally when she's in these studio comedies, if I can list some other ones too, but like most of them are forgettable. Where she has this role where she's in it and she's just like the goofy friend. And like she's weird and she gets one-liners. Whereas in this it's like, nah, that's like, she's like, she's Morpheus, right? Like that is the joke. She's she's Morpheus in the world. But mm. like she's also like pretty chill. I don't know. I really like her performance of Barbie. Even though obviously she isn't someone like you go, what, leave out the movie and like, oh yeah, Kate McKinnon was great in that. But you go, you think about it, you're like, yeah, that was probably Kate McKinnon's best film performance. Because she actually found a real truth to that character. And again... Hearing Kate McKinnon's playing weird Barbie immediately sets you up for expectations. Like, oh, she's going to ham it up. You know, like, why wouldn't she? She's playing the weird character. And then you see it and you're like, oh, no, there's actually like a very sweet heart to that character, even though it's obviously not the focus of this movie. Whereas in Ghostbusters, she should be like the heart of the team. And she's just she's probably like the worst part of female Ghostbusters. Honestly. Dang. But at the time, everyone liked her because it was like the first time she was doing her thing in the movie. But now it's like she's done that in everything since then when she's in a movie. It's like, all right, we get it, you know. One last thing to say to bring it back to these shorts. Um, I like the bit where the um, dog is sweating at the water bowl. Good, good visual gag. Like that, we can't, we cannot list every second of omelet, which has a great visual uh, gag. Yeah, Everyone's I'm just gotta go watch second. it. I just wanted to mention the sweat drop. I just wanted to mention the sweating. Yeah. No, I mean you're right too. It's, 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 it's just a, a great short. All right, what are we gonna give these? Well, 
I had a good time. Now, looking for the ocean, we often give things to things. Like, other podcasts will give grades. Or shit. Um, I never yeah. do this. Um, <laughs> other podcasts give grades, but we give things to the movies. Yeah. Like, physical objects or experiences or something like that. I liked all of these pretty well, and I'm just gonna... I'm gonna give them a... Even the Cars ones? I thought they were totally fine, and I, I had basically the same watch experience as you, as I was just kind of plugging along until I got to Acorn. But still... Possibly a, a new director, Madeline Serafian, now that I feel kind of like Sashka Unsult about, where I'm like, wow, I should actually like pay attention to the things that she works on. We immediately go binge We Bear Bears, but only her episodes. She, I mean, she didn't do a lot of bear, We Bear Bears. She's, it says she has, she's credited on 20 episodes on IMDb. Well, maybe that was like one season. But anyway, so I would just give these films the nice weather that we've been having in New York lately. That's all. As I always give, this is a cliche, but for the car shorts, they get a Disney Plus spot because that is kind of silly. These aren't on Disney Plus. For Madeline shorts, sorry, that weren't first name basis. I don't want to butcher it. Well, also for the car shorts, for more of a serious answer, I'll give them a copy of Out of Sight because I have never seen it, but I've heard good things from the director of um, the short films that maybe the cars characters would like to watch Out of Sight. Maybe that'd be a good time for them. <laughs> I'll give her the omelet that Remy makes in Ratatouille that looks incredibly good. You know, like how people always like tweet about like how Studio Ghibli's like food looks delicious, which it does. I do always think about like the ideal omelet in a way is that omelet that Remy makes in Ratatouille. It does look really good. So I'll give her that omelet. And I would like to give a gift to everyone else. If you can find that clip of Hayao Miyazaki actually telling someone how to color food, there's a clip from a documentary where you actually see him do it. And he explains how it shouldn't actually be how food is colored, but like, you know, how you want it to be. And he goes into it. But, you know, find that clip. That's a great time. What are we doing next time, Danny? Well, next time we are talking about a movie, Monsters University. It will be an interesting talk because, Mark, have you seen Monsters U? I forget. Have you? Well, I watched it already, actually, because I thought it's what we were doing today. And actually... Have you watched it before this? Not before before this. Okay. But I actually really liked it. I'll be real. Like, here's the thing. I'm not going to give my take now, but I remember when I first saw it, I was very positive on it. And then I kind of went back a bit on that, but I do still like one aspect of it a lot. I do think it's a movie that's a little unfairly maligned. I'll give it that. It's not what you think, everybody. All, All right. right. Looking for the Ocean is produced by Mark Young and Danny Vincent. I don't have it open. Sorry. <laughs> I was looking at the letterbox page for um, these shorts. The show is edited by Mark Young. Our original artwork was designed by Sarah Knopf. Follow us on social media at Facebook at Looking for the Ocean, Instagram at Looking for the Ocean Pod, and Twitter at Pixar Journey. And on our website, lookingfortheoceanpixar.podbean.com. You can follow me on markyoungperformer.com, which has my socials, and it also has a page where you can listen to episodes of this podcast. You can also follow me, Danny, at Blankman's at Letterbox for all my takes on all the movies. I will say, not this episode, but our next episode will be interesting because I'm going on a cruise soon, which means I'm curious because I'm not going to have Wi-Fi on the cruise. It's going to be interesting that I watch movies on the ship because I know like ships have that. I'll probably like take advantage of it just because I feel like a week and a half cruise. I don't think I'm going to be like, I think there'll be nights I just like, I'm going to watch a movie. You know what I mean? Like, anyway, all this to say, it'll be interesting to see if I can figure out how to log stuff on Letterbox during that. Yeah. Um, you also listen to our podcast, The Snub Club. We talk about movies at the most Oscar nominations and our wins. Next time is Monsters U. Woo!